And now Micheletti backhands a pass to the right. Silden and drives it. It's blocked. Chipperfield back of the net. Comes to the right side. Looking for a man in front at the corner. Starts back toward the line to Micheletti. Micheletti, a man lost his stick there trying to check him. It was Lynch from a centering pass, and it goes rink wide. Silden puts it beside the net. It's centered out in front. Semenko scores! Dave Semenko may have the honor of scoring the last goal in the history of the WHA. And that will be, as far as the playoffs concerned, number four for Disco Dave. And it comes at 19.48. 12 seconds remaining as they drop the puck. Now it's fed to Chipperfield. He lost it. And the Jets get it. It's played to the Oiler line. And the crowd is just deafening here with the noise. It's all over. They rush onto the ice to mob the Amco Cup champion Winnipeg Jets, who have defeated the Edmonton Oilers here tonight by a score of 7-3. to three. It was their fifth final series in the seven-year history of the league and the third time that they won the cup. Now, the ushers are trying to control the crowd, but they're just pouring over the boards out onto the ice. And it's a real mob scene down around the Winnipeg goal. At the opposite end, it's a little sadder. The Oilers have gone back to regroup, complement each other, and now they're coming up single file for the traditional post-series handshake if they can get the Jets loose from all of their fans and each other. We're number one. You can't argue with that. Yes, they are. And now the players are shaking hands. The Oilers will go to their dressing room and the Jets will stay out for the presentation of the AFCO Cup. And they will have permanent possession of that cup having been the last team to win it as the WHA is now officially no more. Next year, it's all one league, the NHL, with four fine teams coming into one of the oldest professional leagues in North America. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, buckle up, friends. This is it. This is the uh, episode that uh, many of you have been uh, waiting for, and we're uh, welcoming you uh, you to it, uh, and we appreciate you finding it. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available, of course, that curious little podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports, and uh, we have uh, one of the mothers of all used-to-bes in professional sports, and that is the World Hockey Association, the WHA. Uh, and our guest this week is uh, a repeat visitor, uh, his name is Ed Willis, and uh, he is the author of The Rebel League, The Short and Unruly Life of the World Hockey Association. Uh, it is uh, a, a long uh, journey to uh, get this conversation uh, up and going. Uh, as you may remember, a few episodes ago, we had Ed on to talk about the uh, the interesting 1990s adventure of the Canadian Football League and their journey into the uh, American football landscape. Uh, and that was a wildly successful episode, and a lot of people wrote in. Uh, saying uh, how uh, fun and enjoyable that was. But uh, we also, uh, for many, many months, uh, almost since the beginning of uh, of this little podcast with our very first episode uh, talking about the great NHL expansion uh, in 67-68 with the California Golden Seals with uh, our friend Mark Gretschmill way back when, uh, we uh, obviously have had various hints and uh, and odors, shall we say, of the WHA always lingering out there. 
and uh, and Ed uh, uh, has written uh, the seminal book, and it's it's a hell of a read. Again, it's called the Rebel League, uh, the short and unruly life of the World Hockey Association. It's a it's a it's a treasure uh, to behold uh, in terms of pictures and stories, and we're going to get into some of that uh, in our conversation uh, coming up in a couple of minutes. So, you know, if you remember uh, the uh, Toronto Toros, or perhaps the uh, the Phoenix Roadrunners, uh, maybe you are a fan or an aficionado of the old Houston Arrows or the Minnesota Fighting Saints, for God's sakes, uh, Chicago Cougars, you know, in the old International Amphitheater uh, and the odors uh, and the uh, uh, uneven ice of that. Uh, all of those and more will be yours to remember. Uh, yes, you too, you Cincinnati Stingers fans. Uh, it's This is all for you. This episode is for you. Um, and uh, we look forward to presenting it to you uh, in a couple of uh in a couple of seconds after we get some promo stuff uh, out of the way. Uh, one of our favorite uh, and uh, longtime sponsors is our friends at Audible. And you know by now that uh, audiobooks is what Audible does and probably better than any other entity on the planet. And you also know by now, and if you haven't taken advantage of it, shame on you. And uh, you have no excuse not to. There are 180,000 plus and counting titles. Uh, for you to choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats to get a free uh, download of one of those titles uh, for you to enjoy. And it's free. Yes, I said it's free, 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 free. Get it now. Uh, and uh, it's a tremendous way to uh, get a sampling of what uh, an audio book is, uh, how great it is, how it uh, kills time while you're traveling. Uh, you can learn things while you're actually not reading. You don't strain your eyes. And there's just so many damn titles to choose from that you just, you, there's no excuse not to be able to find something that you're going to find that's uh, interesting and uh, intriguing and enjoyable. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's the place to go to get your free audiobook download and a free audiobook. We said uh, download, didn't we? You're going to get one free audiobook download. It's not got out of, out of hand here. Uh, and a free uh, one month uh, subscription to the service. And you get a, obviously get a taste of all the various titles that are available for you. You can cancel at any time. Did I say that properly? You can cancel at any time. So give it a try. Get your free audiobook download and a free month uh, worth, a month's worth, he says, of the Audible service at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Give it a try. We appreciate your doing so. And we absolutely appreciate Audible for uh, sticking with us all these many months uh, in our little podcast journey together. We also appreciate our friend Dean Mitchell uh, and his team at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, and that is the place to go, sportshistorycollectibles.com, for just about any kind of uh, sports memorabilia, especially uh, in modern-day uh, forgotten sports teams and leagues. And I can guarantee you there's going to be a ton of items from the old World Hockey Association there on sportshistorycollectibles.com. And uh, when you find something of interest, and uh, the photography there is great, you're going to see some items there just, uh, just fascinating to look at, and, and I'm almost positive you're going to find something you're going to want to like. You're not only going to like, you're going to want, you're going to want to own it. Uh, and the opportunity is yours to to purchase and save 15% in doing so. And the only way you're going to do that is by using the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. And you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Uh, I, uh, I encourage you to find uh, some WHA materials there. I don't know if you find something from the New York Raiders uh, or perhaps when they were known as the New York Golden Blades, or perhaps when they were known as the Jersey Knights, or maybe perhaps when the Jersey Knights moved to San Diego and became the Mariners. Perhaps there is something there for you at, good, at uh, 
Good Seats. I was going to say my website. That's crazy. GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You can always check that out, of course. But SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, that's the place to find all kinds of WHA and other cool stuff and memorabilia from teams and leagues no longer in existence. And again, please use that promo code GOODSEATS uh, for your 15% discount. All right. I'm uh, I, My tongue is getting tied. There's no doubt about it. So I'm getting excited because uh, I want to present to you this uh, fine chat that we had with our uh, return guest, our friend Ed Willis, talking about the Rebel League. That is the WHA, the World Hockey Association. And here's that chat now. So I'm very happy to have you back to the podcast to uh, to talk about uh, the Rebel League, which is the name of the book, but also uh, perhaps the best uh, way to aptly describe this crazy, as in you say, the short and unruly life of this league called the World Hockey Association. I must tell you, and I think I've said this in our in our uh, email correspondences, uh, that this is a um, a topic that has uh, come up regularly since we started the show a year and a half ago as a. Uh, as a topic that people want to hear and uh, more about and discuss and, uh, and, and remember. So um, perhaps before we get going, uh, why don't you remind our audience who you are, uh, what your life story is, and uh, maybe we can stumble our way into why the WHA and the book that you wrote. Sure. Uh, yeah. My, so I'm, I'm Ed Willis. I'm, I've been the sports columnist at the Vancouver province for 20 years now. I've, uh, worked in Montreal. I've worked in beautiful Medicine Head, Alberta, and Regina, and I was eight, eight years in Winnipeg. And I've written three books. Uh, the Rebel League was the first one. Uh, Gretzky de Lemieux, the story of the 1987 Canada Cup was the second one. And End Zones and Border Wars, which is the uh, story of uh, the CFL's expansion into the United States, was the third one. So that just about covers it. And we uh, encourage our listeners to go back and to uh to find uh, that episode, that's episode 65, if you're counting at home, and a few of you, I'm sure, are doing so, uh, which is a, a great discussion about the CFL and the, its American expansion. And I must tell you, uh, as I've said on, on, uh, on our correspondence, it is uh, perhaps one of our most popular episodes uh, of the last year and a half, and certainly of this year. Uh, so it's, it's, clearly, it's clearly remembered by a whole bunch of people, uh, and it keeps, uh, it keeps being downloaded. So... Um, we appreciate that, but let's let's try to break that record with the WHA. So let me um, let me start by sort of uh, obviously you're of Canadian descent, right? And uh, and and hockey, of course, is the uh, proverbial national sport of of uh, of Canada. Um, give me a sense of uh, of your uh, knowledge going into writing this book of the WHA. Was it part of your beat reporting uh, as a sports reporter, and um, and then why the book? per se, even if not? No, the the seven-year history of the WHA predates uh, my involvement with newspapers. So, I I mean, the the genesis of this story, and that might be a podcast in itself, when I was working in Medicine Hat, uh, a guy named John Garrett, who had been a goalie in the WHA, was the goalie coach of the Vancouver Canucks. And the Medicine Hat Tigers, who were the junior team, had drafted a kid named Troy Gamble in the second round and they would send John out to check on him. And I, I sort of knew John and, and uh, the uh, Tigers had an assistant coach named Brian Maxwell. And there was another guy named Marshall Johnson, who was a long, long time NHL scout. So uh, they went out for beers after the game and I, I went with them and they started telling stories about the WHA. 
and it, it, it went on well into the night. And I, I can't remember. It was like a Richard Pryor stand-up comedy show. I haven't laughed that hard or I hadn't laughed that hard in my life. So I kind of filed it away. Um, a couple of years later, I'm working in Regina and this is, this is in the eighties and we had a huge sports section and, and I thought, you know, I, I want to take a bit of a run at that. So I did a five part series on the WHA, which really became the genesis of the book uh, from that point. Now getting from there to when the book is actually published almost 20 years later is another story. But that's kind of where we went. And then I spent eight years in Winnipeg, which was the home of the Jets. And that put me in contact with, you know, a lot of source material and a lot of the characters, uh, a lot of the key characters who were involved in the WHA. Well, before we get to sort of the beginnings of it or the pre-even beginnings of it, um, what is it about? What is the... What am I searching for? What is the lore, I guess, about this league, right? It only lasted for... A bunch of years in the 70s, but it still rings, right? Obviously, there's some names of teams, and they're still around, either a name or actually in uh, an actual continuation. But I, what is it about this league that um, I don't know that still fascinates people uh, in the in an era now where the NHL seems to be, with, save a few franchises, uh, thriving? Yeah, I think it's the romance of the story, and, and and you know, like you know, you think of classic stories and. You know, you think of heroes and villains and underdogs and people trying against all odds uh, to overcome. And they they probably know they're in a losing battle, but they continue anyways. You know, and that's really the story. I think that's the essential appeal of the uh, appeal of the WHA. These like like band of, you know, they're from all over the map. It's like lawyers from California and Chicago and hockey men from Western Canada and French Canadians and people who just want to get their foot in the door and it's being blocked by this monolith, this great corporate monster, the NHL, but they fight their way in and they score these victories. And, you know, at the end, I mean, the, the, the whole enterprise seems doomed from the start. It's almost like Spartacus, you know, in that regard, but, but the fight is, is so intense and so passionate and it gives rise to these incredible stories and characters that the best writer on their best day couldn't make up. So I think that's it. It's like a little snapshot in time. But this thing, you know, kind of arises from out of nowhere, you know, fights a good fight. And for all that, it leaves a legacy and it has this profound effect on the game that we can still talk about today and still has relevancy. So I, I love uh, in your book you uh, you uh, headline all the chapters with a quote, and um, I, I think perhaps the most apt one might be a good segue into our, I guess, the primordial ooze from which the WHA uh, sort of uh, became more solid. And chapter one, the quote is: "They knew nothing about hockey, absolutely zero. Is that right? right. So yeah, no, no, a hundred percent. So, uh, so the founding fathers of the WHA are, you know, have consistent with the league. This is motley assortment, and it, it's just like incredible how they all come together. So, the WHA is basically the bastard offspring of the American Basketball Association. And for people listening to this podcast, I urge them to get Terry Pluto's book, Loose Balls, which is an oral history of the ABA and might be top to bottom my favorite sports book of all time. But the characters who are instrumental in the startup of the ABA, and there's, they come and go, 
but they uh, they include Gary Davidson, uh, Dennis Murphy, and uh, a dude named Dan Reagan, who's the lawyer. And they're kind of the brains behind the ABA, and then they, they, they the ABA, their influence in the ABA is taken away, and they turn their gaze towards the next shiny object, which comes across their field of vision, which is hockey. Now, as mentioned, I'm sorry, all three of these guys are, are from California. They know absolutely nothing about hockey. But they kind of start exploring and they understand that the hockey markets are, 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 are underutilized. There is great potential, just like with the ABA and just like with the World Football League, which is another Gary Davidson brainchild, which comes along a little later. So there's an opportunity there. They just don't know anything about the game. And uh, they are introduced to these a group of Canadians who, who operate junior hockey franchises in Western Canada, and together they move this thing forward. But again, like I said, it's just like the most unlikely uh, confederacy you can imagine, and they are colorful, colorful characters. Yeah, and Dennis Murphy and uh, Gary Davidson are still both with us, and uh, they are uh, they are kind of the, the, the holiest of grails that we uh, we uh, are, are looking for, and, and you know we don't know what... Uh, in what sort of uh, shape that they're in and whether they want to regale in some of these stories, uh, if at all. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that those guys, right, uh, uh, come back over and over again. And, I mean, Dennis Murphy in particular, right, I think, you know, not only those leagues, but things like Roller Hockey International. He was like an inveterate, you know, entrepreneur sports guy, right, before it was even fashionable. I mean, if anybody who's been sort of uh, – and Davidson too. I mean, three leagues, you know, of varying levels of success. I mean, these are guys – you know, it was interesting. I think Sports Illustrated a number of years ago when they were doing one of their anniversary uh, issues, I think put uh, Gary Davidson in like the top 100 sports figures of all time, right? Because this is a guy who fundamentally, literally like his autobiography at the time, you know, breaking the game wide open. I mean, he was challenging various sports and leagues with things around things like the reserve clause and and why not teams in, in, in other cities that, you know, why restraint of trade, you know, why the NHL was only in a certain amount of cities. Um, you have to give them credit, uh, albeit uh, uh, sort of in a haphazard way, I guess, for for truly uh, uh, knocking heads and and and, and getting uh, these pro leagues sort of uh, you know uh, on the radar and and pushing the sports accordingly. Yeah, I, I, just one thing. I I think we've lost Dennis Murphy, and, and Dennis, if you're still alive and listening to this, I apologize, but I think Dennis has passed. Gary Davidson, I'm not sure. And he was kind of an elusive. When I was writing this book, I developed a bit of a relationship with Don Reagan, who was the legal counsel for the WHA. And he, he put me in, t- in touch with, uh, with Davidson. He wasn't very forthcoming, but, you know, it was good to get his voice in it. But with, as far as the Sports Illustrated thing, I agree 100%. For me, he is, like, right there with, like, Rune Arledge, Pete Rozelle, Marvin Miller is, has shapers uh, of the modern business of, Amer- of, of North American professional sports. And, you know, what he did in terms of, you know, breaking the monopoly and taking basketball, uh, hockey and football to places where they never would have, uh, it never would have existed had, had those big leagues been left to their own advices, devices because they were a monopoly they loved the setup the way it was. They could dictate the rules. They could suppress player salaries. They could take all the money to themselves. And then along comes these characters from California and then the hockey men from, from Canada. 
and in terms of hockey, they do really do blow, blow the thing wide open. Uh, and they offered a generation of players their first shot at a real payday. And we're talking about some of the games of mortal guys like Gordy Howe and Bobby Hull. So uh, he had, uh, you, you're right, I'm not sure how purposeful it was. I'm not sure how well thought it was, out it was. But the net effect uh, was profound, and, and, and it, really, it really shook the game to its foundation. All right, so are you hinting here that this, and we've heard this theme over and over again, right, that this was maybe not necessarily a noble pursuit of sort of uh, expanding the sport of hockey to, uh, to the unwashed, but more of a business uh, opportunity when seeing, say, I don't know, just dollar signs, Canadian, uh, loony, or, or U.S. or otherwise, uh, for a, a business proposition? I, I would put it this way. I don't think all of their motives were knowable. I, I think their prime motivation was just to get the seed money for the franchises. So when they, you know, they start off, I don't know how chronologically you want to get into this, but, um, you know, and, and it was kind of, it was very similar to the business uh, model they had for the ABA, uh, both Murphy and, and Davidson took a franchise. Davidson's franchise was in the Bay Area. Uh, he took it. He actually sold that to the Quebec group and got over 200000 for it, which is huge money in the early 70s. So there was a lot of that, and it gave them jobs, too. Davidson was basically the commissioner of the league for the first couple of years before he left to uh, uh, start the World Football League. But yeah, I, they were, I think, probably more preoccupied with, uh, you know, the, 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 their own interests. But also, they loved the hustle. They loved the challenge. They loved all those things. And, and I don't think you can, like, completely short sell their efforts because it, it was really the fight that was the important thing at the end. Maybe not the motivation, but... Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, like, I, I like my heroes to be slightly flawed. I like them to have a few rough edges around them, and that certainly qualifies in this case. Well, I, I think before we sort of jump into 71, when the league sort of got going, um, I think it's important to remember, and I think, you know, fans of a certain generation, or certainly today's generation, don't sort of realize this, but, you know, the NHL, right, was only, uh, you know, uh, really uh, had not expanded Post, you know, past uh, six franchises until the nineteen mid nineteen mid mid to late nineteen sixties, and the, the the popularity of the sport right was uh, still quite regional and uh, and historic. You know, uh, rooted to you know back uh, decades earlier. So you know, if you're looking around the sports landscape and you see the excitement of professional hockey, um, you know, the league did double in size in sixty seven sixty eight, right? And we've talked about. Uh, on this podcast, uh, the Minnesota North Stars uh, being part of that, and the California Seals, then Golden Seals, and whatever their names were and stuff. But, uh, you know, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and L.A. and St. Louis, I mean, uh, clearly there were uh, people recognizing that hockey was in a very limited geographical footprint. And I'm wondering if uh, some of the uh, inklings were, you know, sort of reverberating around the NHL I, you know, why the great expansion? Maybe that's for another another podcast. But uh, it seems to me that the NHL had somehow woken up from its slumber and then maybe the WHA was recognizing or maybe even underneath kind of pushing some of the buttons already before 1971 came around. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's funny. I, I, I'm not sure if the threat of a new league is, is you know, re, re, really the impetus for, for the great expansion in 1967. I think it's more, you know, the sports world is changing and the NHL is slow to realize it, but they do realize it. I mean, it's incredible that league basically existed as, as a construct of, of the Norris family who owned three of the franchises uh, the Smythe family and Con Smythe in Toronto and, 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 and the Montreal Canadiens. And, you know, and again, of course they loved it. They've got like a monopoly in these mega, mega markets. Now this is before TV money and all the rest of it comes in, but the national hockey league has always done great business at the box office and in the days of the original sex. Um, you know, the, the, those, those old rings were licenses to print money. So we have that. Um, they see the sports landscape and there is money to be made and they've got to get to the Sun Belt, which takes them to Los Angeles and takes them to Oakland and the Golden Seals. And, and I'm still not sure why Pittsburgh is part of that original group because they, they, they really don't fit in. But there is some, you know, there, there is this spirit of expansionism, which takes place in the NHL. And then we start to see, you know, with the, with the ADA, and I, I say well, there's even a, uh, Dennis Murphy has a connection to the old AFL, which is really the start of all this. Uh, he, he's trying to get an expansion team into Los Angeles in about 65, and that's what really opens his eyes to this whole world of creating teams and creating leagues. Well, it's... Um... You know, it's it's uh, it's also uh, worthy to note here that um, you know the salary of the average NHL player, like in the early 1970s, was I think it was like around something like 25,000 U.S. dollars, which at the time, you know, and, and hockey was considered one of the four, if not the fourth, uh, major sport in this uh, in this country, and, and I guess in North America uh, writ large. Uh, save for Canada by itself, which is obviously much more popular. But, but you know, clearly the economics, and plus it was a reserve clause, right, which is a, a theme we've heard right. many, many times, baseball, uh, some of its earliest days. Uh, so it seems like uh, they had a few hot buttons to push, even though they didn't know much about the sport. Oh, yeah, no, it, 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 it was set up for them. And they were also shrewd enough to know where they could attack and where they could score victories. Uh, so, in, you know, in terms of the player salaries, when the WHA comes along, I mean, you know, they dangle uh, a million dollars in front of Bobby Hall, which was, again, just like a mind-boggling amount of money. But it gets them a guy who's one of the three best players in the world. They, they get Gordie Howe on the cheap. Basically, I'm trying to remember the exact figures of the contract, but I don't think it was over 200000 a year to get Gordy and, and then his three sons, they all ended up signing for about, about the same. But the other part of that is, so you've got these guys who, who are, you know, tied to the reserve clause, to their team, and, and a lot of them had been buried in the minors for a long time, making 10000 12000 a year. Well, along comes the WHA, and now they're offering them fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. Of course they're going to take it. So, you know, I think that's really... One of the reasons why the WHA gets off the ground, yes, they get Hall, yes, they get a couple of named players, but it's the, I, I, for me, the, the, the kind of guts of the operations, they get these very good minor pro players, stick them into the, and, and that allows them to, you know, field a decent enough pro- product that people in some areas go out to see it. 
I think it's also interesting too that, uh, according to my research, that the uh, you know when they announced that uh, this league was going to start uh, in '72, I think they uh, uh, kind of announced it in uh, September or October of '71. Uh, that uh, uh, they were going, they announced with ten teams, and and the the price tag for each of those franchises was ironically the average NHL salary twenty five thousand um, dollars. That's I find that sort of uh, humorous, and uh, but there's there's no mistake that that Bobby Hull right was the biggest name in that earliest of days, uh, but they were luring lots of other NHL players, even though there wasn't anything really substantial aside from an announcement and some and some teams that were were named and markets named. Yeah, I think the first year they get they get over 60 NHL players. And it's interesting because the two teams that are hit hardest are Boston and Toronto. And as we get into this podcast, they're really the, the, the cornerstone of the anti-merger faction, which I, they end up holding up merger the merger for, you know, well, they start talking about the merger after the first year of existence of the league. But Boston and Toronto want their pound of flesh from the WHA. In fact, you can make the case that the WHA cost the Boston Bruins a dynasty. They won the Stanley Cup in 1970. They won again in 72 with Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and all these stars. But the WHA went in and scooped up their supporting cast. They got Derek Sanderson. They got Derry Cheevers, their goalie. Uh, they got some of their young defensemen. They got Johnny McKenzie, who was an invaluable. He was a, basically their first-line right winger. Uh, and they never, they, they didn't win, uh, the, the, that or Esposito team didn't win another Stanley Cup. And, and the Maple Leafs, their owner was Harold Ballard, a notorious skin flint. And he just watched player after player walk out the door and he, he refused to, you, you know, match up. The one team that did step up and made their players, uh, you know, really double, triple, quadrupled their salary was the New York Rangers. And they signed guys like, you know, Brad Park to, to deals in, in the 200,000s, which w- was, again, an extraordinary leap at the time. So, you know, teams had to make this choice. You know, are we going to play ball here? Are we going to lose our players to the WHA? And the ones that didn't, you know, they, they suffered for that choice. But you're, you're hinting that that part of the strategy of getting this league up and running, announcements just to start, was indeed looking for fights, right? To to sort of challenge the reserve clause and and get some yeah. some legal wins maybe uh, under their belts and and maybe give uh, some of the players who might have been a bit hesitant or, or wary, uh, despite the uh, the alluring check sizes, uh, that uh, that there there was a a fight uh, on their behalf eff- effectively underway by these guys. Yeah, and again, you know, the sort of, and they kind of established a lot of the precedents in the in the ABA. You know, like Rick Barry had his fight uh, to play with to play with the Oakland team, and I think he ends up sitting out the first year, but he ends up playing with them too. So you know, and, and I'm just trying to remember the exact chronology of this. Kurt Flood writes his famous letter in 1969, I believe. And and that didn't topple the reserve clause, but I think you can make the case it sets in wheels the, the, the events that eventually lead to the Andy, Andy Messersmith case, which does topple the reserve clause. So, again, this is in the air, and Don Reagan, who's their legal counsel, and ends up doing a lot of the work fighting against the reserve clause. I, I, he understands that this is a weak link. And if the NHL tries to enforce it to prohibit its players from leaving from the WHA, it won't stand up in court. 
and there were some bloody fights along the way, but that's exactly what ends up happening. Yeah, and, and, and timely, too, because in, in November of 72, which is around when the league was uh, 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 slated to, to start, I forget exactly when in 72 the league actually did start, but um, uh, there was that case, uh, Judge uh, Leon Higginbotham in, uh, in uh, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania essentially placed an injunction against the NHL uh, preventing it from enforcing its reserve clause. So talk about opening up the floodgates. I mean, I think, you know, most of the folks who had signed up or frankly were considering it uh, just saw this as a, uh, uh, I'll, I'll call it an emancipation, but certainly an opportunity to maybe take their, their wares elsewhere for more money. There, there, I, I, every hockey player should have some kind of shrine to Judge Higginbotham. And his role in all this is really underreported in hockey history, and it's uh, granted it's a cameo appearance. I didn't read the whole judgment, but I've seen parts of it. And it was almost like the WHA dictated it. So when, you know, like when he writes his ruling and, and he does here, he doesn't actually rule against the reserve clause, but he writes it in such a way that if this legal battle continues, there's no doubt about the way this is going to go. And the language is so strong and so forceful and, you know, it, it speaks to what's coming down really in all sports, you know, in, in introducing an era of free agency in introducing a player, uh, an era of free, freer player movement after they were basically indentured servants for, for so long. And uh, he is a fascinating character. He was, uh, a, you know, a black man who was appointed to uh, the court in, uh, I'm sorry, Philadelphia, right? Uh, that's correct. And, and, but yeah, but he was an appointee of JFK, and uh, he was just yeah, just a remarkable, remarkable man. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's it, it's it's pretty incredible story. But and it's amazing too that how timely it was, right? So I mean, you could not have uh, ex- more exquisitely timed all of this, right? To have that kind of a legal uh, decision at your back when you're literally weeks away from getting the season. Yeah, it, it actually, it seems to me that the, the decision comes once the season has started because Bobby Hall couldn't start the season with the Winnipeg Jets because they had this injunction, the Chicago Blackhawks had this injunction against them. And, you know, in the book, Don Reagan tells this great story about going to argue a case in Chicago and he's got a Chicago lawyer working with him and he looks at it and the Chicago lawyer looks at the judge and goes, oh, we can't win this one. He goes, why? Oh, that's, that's, there was the Wirtz family that owned the uh, Blackhawks. <laughs> the guy says, yeah, the Wirtz family owns that judge. We're not going to win this one. And then, of course, they didn't, but they did win uh, other one. They did win other fights later. Well, so it's interesting. Uh, as the legal sort of cases sort of wended their way through uh, the courts and, and, and the fights sort of uh, began, uh, the, on the business side, it's very interesting, right? You had, uh, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, it was 10 or 12 teams. It looks like 12 teams were formally announced in November of 71. And while some of those uh, settled and changed and whatever, I mean, including one team, the Miami Screaming Eagles, that never even got off the ground, uh, which is an interesting story. But, uh, the, uh, the, the, the composition of the teams is interesting, right? Because it's, a, it's, it's, and this seems like it's a template either for disaster or by design for many, many other challenger leagues, two new football leagues to come uh, in the case as well, where you have a mixture of teams in major cities where a challenge might make sense, right? Either because the team is moribund or the market is big enough that could probably support another franchise and maybe one with a little bit more pizzazz and, and newness to it. 
But then, of course, also a bunch of other cities that uh, did not have top league NHL uh, uh, hockey that uh, are were fertile territory that the NHL, for whatever reasons, had not yet discovered or had ignored. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and, when, and when you look at the composition, it's really hard to find out what the common theme is. I absolutely love this. So the Houston franchise was originally slated for Dayton, Ohio, and there was going to be this grand plan to, you know, renovate the rink in Dayton and bring big time professional hockey that it never really, uh, yeah, that, that you could figure, you, you could guess where that idea went. So they end up in Houston, which ends up being a fairly successful franchise, and they get the house, and, you know, that's, that's a fantastic uh, WHA story. But so many, it, it, it's interesting. I'm just, not, again, I'm going from memory, but, like, the franchises that stay kind of in their original spots are the Canadian franchises, Quebec, Winnipeg, uh, Edmonton, uh, New England goes through the, you know, they start off as the New England Whalers and they end up moving to Hartford. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things of the WHA, that's like staying in, in the same place. But the other franchises, like the one, in, the one in Los Angeles, which was run by Dennis Murphy, it was only there for a couple of years. It becomes the Michigan Stags. And then I think it folds or they might become, I think they were the Baltimore Blades for about five minutes and then they fold. I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here because that's such a big part of the WHA story. These franchises that come and go and seemingly disappear in the middle of the night. Well, I mean, uh, for a league that existed from 1972 to, what is it, 1979? Uh, you know, I, there, there are literally um, a couple of dozen franchises or, or incarnations of teams, which is just, it's, it's, it's incredible. But I think it actually points to, and we'll get to maybe some of the, the wackier ones in a second, but uh, it does point, you know, in our exploration of the WFL, which came after this, um, it feels to me like there's a, 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 a juggle, if you will, as part of the hustle, right, between finding money and finding the people attached to that money and uh, the geographies, plural, that uh, make the most sense either from a league perspective or the person with the money's perspective. And... That seems like you've got two or three variables to kind of juggle and play around with. Um, and, you know, there's no yeah, there's no real central ownership or, or management, right? This is a franchise-based business from day one. So the checks mm-hmm. kind of seem to rule the day. But, you know, I mean, putting the New York Raiders, not Rangers, in, in New York, right, where you've got, you know, uh, uh, the Rangers, which are a legacy franchise, the Islanders are starting to – you know, get going as well and, and you know, uh, uh, competing against the Chicago Blackhawks in a uh, not even second tier facility in Chicago. I mean, I, there just, you know, seem to be some some strange decisions sort of made versus, uh, you know, sane ones when it comes to, you know, placing franchises. And, and you got to think that some of it has to do with the personalities and the, and the money involved. Well, and you have to, I think the key thing there, it's really so cheap to buy a membership into this league. Like you said, you know, the, the original franchises went for 25,000. Now, by the time they kind of go through, you know, the second rinse in the cycle, they're up to $200,000. But this is an era when, you know, a guy who had a relatively successful car dealership could afford a franchise. The guy who gets the fil- the guy who gets the Philadelphia Blazers, Jim Cooper, is, he's a successful lawyer who loves sports. This is his chance to own a professional sports franchise. 
you know, why wouldn't he? I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's so much more fun owning a professional sports franchise than insurance policies, right? Dennis Murphy had this great line in his sales pitch, what would you rather do, own a hockey team in Detroit or sell brassiers in Muskegon? Nobody knows what it meant, but it, for what, you know, I, I think that kind of does, you know, capture the spirit of the thing. And there, there were people who were lined up to buy the franchises. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get, uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss, and of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum, and Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis. Uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. And Back to our conversation. So uh, it feels to me like the NHL sort of kind of, as you can imagine, right, sort of try to sort of uh, cast the uh, the WHA aside and, and sort of the, the distractions of the circus of it. But it does seem to me that Bobby Hull's signing was kind of like the the sort of punch in the face that kind of maybe got a lot of people to sort of pay attention and said, wait a minute, this actually may be serious with that kind of money and that kind of star power going to an untested league. Yeah, the NHL's first reaction was to ignore it. And there's a great quote from Larry Plow in the book, who was a Montreal Canadiens uh, farmhand, good young centerman, you know, probably should have been playing in the NHL. 
But on the Montreal Canadiens, he stacked up against Jean Beliveau, Henri Richard, Pete Mahovlich, and you know, then there's Jacques Lemaire is in the system somewhere. So like he's not going anywhere. Maybe, maybe in his mid twenties he might get a shot, but that's as much as he could have hoped for. Along comes the WHA, and they offer him, you know, a, you know, a very good salary also in in his in the New England area, which is where he's from. So he goes to Sam Pollock and, and Mr. Pollock, I feel like I have to tell you this. And Pollock looks at him and goes, there's not going to be a WHA. You're fooling yourself. And that was the attitude of the NHL. Now, when Hull comes along, signs his contract, and maybe even a little before that, they've got their legal guns going and they're challenging and there's injunctions, you know, and they take Derek Sanderson to court and they take John McKenzie to court and they take Bobby Hull to court. But again, it comes back to this, you know, the decision written by Judge Higginbotham. I mean, that wasn't going to, they couldn't count on that anymore. And now it's kind of a free for all. Really, after that decision, it's just kind of like a financial bloodbath. And the WHA, I mean, give them credit, they hung in there and uh, um, not quite sure how they did it some years. But, you know, there was a will there to keep the thing going. And, you know, they end up lasting for seven years. A couple of questions. So uh, why why does somebody of of Hull's stature uh, go to uh, to Winnipeg? Is that a Winnipeg Jets ownership thing? Is that a league decision? Uh, why not say a major market like the Raiders in New York? Uh, just curious as to why maybe that. No, no disrespect to Winnipeg. I mean, obviously it puts Winnipeg on the map, but. Well, so so again, a couple of things there. Bobby is thirty three. I believe he's thirty two when he signs the contract. So he's still one of the five best players in the game. But he's kind of starting the back nine of his career. He had just gone through a, a bitter contract negotiation with the Blackhawks. Uh, where he had, and, and the only way he could get a you know a better deal in those days was to hold out. He thought promises had been made. The Blackhawks reneged on. He held out, and then he for, he was forced to make this sort of very public uh, uh, confession that you know yes, and he had to sign a new deal. So you know that was the one shoe to drop. So he's approached. They they they, they send an emissary. Uh, Bobby is with. It, it takes place in Vancouver. The first meeting between the Winnipeg Jets people and Bobby Hall, but they sent an emissary, Bob Turner, who had played with Hall in, in Chicago, and he was with the Winnipeg Jets owner, a guy named Benny Haskins. And they have concocted this idea. They're going to give Bobby Hall a million up front, and then they're going to give him a contract for 250000 and a couple of other inducements, and that's going to do it. Now, in Hall's telling of the story, he listens to them, and he says, well, yeah, okay, if you can get me the, the million bucks, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with you. And as he said, you know, a million dollars in those days might have been, might as well have been $38 trillion. He did, it was just such an inconceivable amount of money. He didn't think they'd ever come up with it. Well, it becomes a league-wide initiative to get to scrape together this million-dollar signing bonus to get Bobby Hall because they figured this, this is the way, this is our golden ticket. This is the way we're going to survive this thing. And, and they somehow scrape the money together. And th- that's a story in and by itself, because it's supposed to be a league wide initiative. And a lot of the uh, owners didn't, you know, didn't really see the wisdom in, the, in them throwing $100,000 into a pot to get this signing bonus up. But they got it. They got it together and, and, and they got their man. And Bobby Hall was, uh, again, you know, you're doing a Mount Rushmore. 
uh, for NHL hockey players, his face belongs uh, up there in terms of breaking the market open and letting these players have a, pay- a payday. But for every Bobby Hull and, uh, uh, you know, and some of the other uh, folks that we mentioned, you know, uh, Achievers and Sanderson and, and Tremblay and, and some others, um, it, it seems that most of the teams were stocked with uh, journeymen or minor leaguers. And, and I guess the, the, the play, the quality of play was somewhat predictably south of that of the NHL, but, um, or was it? I mean, was it was it competitive? Was it, it certainly seems like it was fun and wild and 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 crazy and and entertaining at, at that yeah oh yeah there's a lot of like nine eight games in the wha it goes through it, it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint it because like it only exists for seven years but there's a couple of years there where they really get it right and it's you, they kind of you know there are, are, are enough teams are reduced and the talent is concentrated and in the sixth year of the league, it's a seven-team entity, and there are four really good teams. And the Winnipeg Jets of that of that era were by far the best WHA team, and they 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 would have been competitive in the NHL. They would have been an NHL playoff team. They might have even gotten. They might have even won a playoff series or two. But it was a team built around. Uh, uh, Swedish players they got, and they still had Bobby Hall and then, and then a couple of others. So at that phase, yes, very good. At the startup phase, not so much. But it was still probably a better product than the NHL certainly gave them uh, credit for. Uh, you know, these players, like, they regarded themselves as being on a mission. You know, they, they thought they were pioneers and they were really striking, you know, they were striking this blow for players everywhere. So, so for these minor leaguers, who all of a sudden were getting a bit of a payday after they were, you know, making peanuts for so long, they took it seriously, you know, and they played hard like that. For very first Houston Arrows team before they signed the house was built all on minor leaguers that their coach Bill Deneen, you know, had, had knowledge of his time in the, in the NHL. And they end up finish, finishing second to Winnipeg in the division. And I think they, they go, they win one playoff series and then lose to Winnipeg in their division or in the conference finals. Uh, but yeah, so it, 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 it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was, but there's, there, there are some shining moments in the, in the league seven year history where the product's pretty damn good. Well, in that first year, the New England Whalers uh, win the uh, AVCO. Uh, cup, which is an interesting story <laughs> yeah. in and of itself, because apparently the Avco Cup wasn't even finished by the time the series was over. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the owner of the uh, of the uh, that New England Whale is a dude named Howard Baldwin, who's been a ticket manager uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers. And again, it's so so in keeping with the WHA, he's a guy in his late twenties, and he's got all of a sudden he's got this opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a professional hockey franchises finds a money guy and they start up the new England whalers and they do a really good job. Actually, they don't get any stars, but they get a lot of really solid NHL players, guys like uh, Tommy Webster and Larry Plo, who we mentioned defenseman, Jim Dory, good goalie and Al Smith, uh, Brad Selwood, another defenseman who'd been in the NHL. So pretty solid team. Anyways, they're playing Winnipeg in the championship series and they're up three, one. And I, I believe it's a nationally televised game. Uh, the, 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 the game five at the Boston Gardens, and they realize they look around and they realize well, we don't have really have a championship. They, they've sold it, of course, because it's the WHA. They sold it to the Avco Insurance Company, but they don't have a 
they don't have a cup. So, so Baldwin sends at one of his underlings, and I, he goes to a sports store and he just grabs the biggest trophy he can find. And <laughs> I think Baldwin said to his, it, it, it looks like something you get for world team tennis, but that was the original. That was the very first Avco Cup. And then they, they designed it, they eventually designed another one. And there's a whole story there because I think there's an Avco Cup in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But the original, the real Avco Cup, sat in the director's lounge at the Winnipeg Arena up until the time that franchise left for uh, Phoenix. So, again, the WHA stories, like, <laughs> they're never really kind of straight and factual and all the rest. There's all these tributaries running through them, and that, that's what makes it that's what makes it all so compelling. But ironically, a little ahead of its time, right? I, like a lot of things that uh, that uh, Davidson and Murphy and and uh, and Frank Baldwin too, uh, uh, you know, did right. I mean, having a sponsored, uh, you know, element in terms of the championship trophy. I mean, well, that's not necessarily common, but you know, other things that you know, creeping commercialism into into the mix, whether it's a arena naming rights or you know, uh, logos on jerseys and those kinds of things. I mean, that, that's that's all sort of, I, it would not surprise me if future uh, championship trophies don't uh, also become sponsored like this uh, was as well. Uh, hopefully, though, uh, fully uh, assembled before it's uh, ready. <laughs> yes, that would, that would be a good idea. But Bald- Baldwin's an interesting cat, though, too, right? Because arguably sure he, is, he's yeah. almost like a, a, the, uh, I don't want to say the unsung hero, because I don't know how many heroes there were out of this entire story. But, I mean, he, he, was, he was, I, I think fairly instrumental in uh in kind of securing the uh, the beginning days of of the league right i don't think without howard baldwin in new england that you know the, the wha had a uh, you know a, a, as solid a shot as it as it did well i, I yeah I, i'm not sure about that i mean he, he he is and he's around he's around right till the bitter end and actually he takes the whalers into the nhl and he's there for a while and then he goes through a couple of incarnations as a you know partial owner of NHL teams, including the Pittsburgh Penguins, I believe. But yeah, no, there, there's a couple of, of Baldwin is one. A Bill Hunter, who we should talk about in Edmonton, is another. Benny Haskin in Winnipeg. These are kind of the owner operators that have a bit of staying power. Uh, the guys in Houston, they go through a couple of different uh, incarnations, but the group that brings the house in, and that was massive. Uh, for the development of the WHA, I'm just trying to run. I'm trying to run through the through the other the the other original uh, guys. Uh, the Quebec group was 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 fairly solid too, but then their franchises were solid, so that that would probably explain it. But I mean, it, it's crazy. Like when I think of it, you know, like because the ownership of the WHA teams includes Ray Kroc, the McDonald's multi-billionaire in San Diego, and then it you know. You've got him, you've got Jimmy Patterson in Vancouver, who's one of the, you know, at the time was one of the wealthiest men in Canada. So you've got these moguls and you've got these kind of fly-by-nighters at the other end of the spectrum, just trying to scrape enough money together to, you know, to, to, to get uh, to, to meet the next payroll. All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of, uh, of franchises in the earliest of, of years, because it's uh, it's indicative, I think, of, of what was to come uh, and frankly, plague. Um I look, for example, at uh, what, I, what I think was supposed to be the the flagship franchise of the WHA from the very beginning, which is the uh, the team in New York, right? So obviously the New York uh, the New York Rangers, uh, very successful team, but uh, this team called the New York Raiders, 
Um, do you want to sort of get into that story? Because it, it almost feels like the NHL quickly, uh, reflexively uh, took uh, took umbrage and and expanded uh, uh, in an arena that uh, that the uh, the Raiders were were looking at uh, on Long Island to kind of get going. Yeah, they, so they, they they expanded the NHL again. You know, one of the things uh, to get back to WHA, they expand into Atlanta and they expand into New York. And Atlanta takes the, uh, uh, Cousins is his name. He was going to be a WHA owner, and then the Islanders they think they, they think that sews up the the metropolitan New York marketplace. But there's a there's a again. I believe he's just a lawyer at the time, a successful one named Dick Wood, and he's got a partner. And they they go in and they pay the franchise fee and they get the New York operation. The problem is that they actually had a pretty sound business plan and 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 they are one of the few people, the few owners at least, who end up making money on the WHA because they sell the New York franchise. They get it while the getting is good. The problem was they they're in Madison Square Garden and they're you know drawing their six seven maybe you know eight nine thousand on a good night. But uh, because Madison's quite because it's a union shop, you know they have to meet all these staffing requirements. So they're paying for like like full on staffing and concessions and security and everything else and rink maintenance. Uh, you know for what should be you know the the regular seventeen thousand they get the Rangers game at Madison Square. So you know, Wood Wood told me that 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 killed them, and they they weren't around. I, I'm not sure. Just saying. Well, I've got it here right in front of me. They become the uh, in year two. Ah, yes. Okay, because now, now bear with me because this takes. So they become the, the New York Raiders the first year. Then they become the New York Golden Blades because they figured a name change. That had to be the key. So they eventually get chased out of Madison Square Garden, and they end up at a rink in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where they are reincarnated as the New Jersey Knights. Uh, and <laughs> New Jersey Knights are one of the uh, one of the. Uh, and believe me, the bar is set very high when I say this. One of the funniest franchises in WHA history. So they play at this dilapidated old barn with a rickety ice surface in New Jersey, and they're there, and then they move to San Diego because Ray Kroc buys them. Well, the uh, it, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, the it, it seems like the Raiders were, were to your point, maybe onto something. I mean, they were originally envisioning being in the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum on Long Island. Right, yeah, yeah. And when the NHL... Yeah, Sorry, yeah. go ahead, yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, it, it seems like, I, I my understanding is that, and Bill Shea, apparently, he of... The old Continental League, and then uh, the Shea Stadium, and then the, the New York Mets eventually, you know, got uh, sort of drafted into this uh, mix. And and I guess the logic was, you know, obviously the Rangers having that uh, historic franchise in New York, and and frankly the entire city to themselves, uh, hockey wise, you know, basically while fighting the idea of a uh, of a WHA, right? Uh, you know, kind of were convinced that you know. If these guys come into Long Island, uh, you know, that could be a far worse thing than maybe having uh, maybe an expansion team in the NHL, which could be a little bit, you know, the devil you know versus that which you don't. Yeah, right. Um, right. But that's yeah. it, it, it seems to me that without the Nassau Coliseum piece, right, that's what sets this sort of uh, peripatetic journey uh, into motion that uh, ultimately winds up uh, through the wilds of uh, suburban Philadelphia in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and then ultimately to San Diego. <laughs> Um, but what a story. I mean, you know, the, but that, but that, that just seems to be common, right? I mean, 
What, what about Chicago, right? So the, the, the Chicago Cougars, right, you know, uh, through various, uh, you wonder, sort of uh, shenanigans behind the scenes uh, through the Blackhawks and, and the NHL, you know, they, they're they're banished to this international amphitheater, right, which is, um, you know, uh, not a, a top-notch facility by any means. Um, Toronto, right, had their... Uh, 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 bell whacked by uh, uh, the the owners of the Ma- Maple Leaf Gardens, right? They made their lives miserable there too. Um, yeah, uh, it just seems like there was uh, couldn't couldn't cut a break, especially in cities where NHL franchises were already. No, no, that's right. And, but, but you know, and here's another thing where the WHA really you know ushers in this new era for the NHL. Yes, they were blocked from a lot of areas, and the response in a lot of cases is to build a new generation of rinks. Now it isn't all over the league. But the, the new rink, there's a new rink in Edmonton, the new rink in Cleveland. I'm sorry, I can't just throwing a blank on the name of the suburb where Nick Maletti, you know, builds this. Uh, Richfield, uh, Richfield, thank you. Thank you. And, and it was it was for its time uh, really is a, a state a state of the art building. The, the new rink in St. Paul uh, <laughs> they had plexiglass, see through plexiglass boards. It was a considered a wonder for the time. The Market Arena in, Indi- in Indianapolis was, you know, that was a, that was a, a, a new a, a new building. There was a, there was a newer building in Cincinnati, as well. So I, I, again, it's such a league of contrasts, right? You've got like there's them in these pre-war dumps, like in like in Cherry Hill. Uh, uh, the Alberta Oilers start playing in the old Edmonton Gardens, and it had been actually condemned. But they they put enough paint and nails and things to bring it up to code, and then they move into the new Northlands Coliseum, which is where the Oilers dynasty, uh, uh, you know, w- w- win so many Stanley Cups. So you know, again with the WHA, you you have to keep that in mind. It's a theme that runs through the league. Um, you know, you've got you've got you've got like these ham and eggs, but then you've got these great players on the other end. You've got these joke franchises, but you've got really solid franchises. You've got these dilapidated old buildings, but then you've got these shiny new mausoleums that are, you know, the precursor of the buildings we see today. Um, it, it, it's it, it's not a league that lends itself to consistency, put it that way. Any any teams in particular amongst the the dozens that uh, the various incarnations that uh, sort of stick out uh, as as memorable and or uh, especially head scratching. Uh, and I know that's saying something when you're talking about the yeah. <laughs> I, I think top to bottom, my favorite uh, franchise is the Minnesota Fighting Saints. And, and it could be because they had so many great characters who were also great storytellers, but they were in the middle of so much stuff too. Uh, even though they really only, they exist for four years and then they come back for part of another season. <laughs> which gives gives uh, gives rise to their nickname, the Minnesota Folding Saints, because they folded twice. Uh, but they, I, I just found their story, and it's so typical uh, of the WHA because, like, all the big themes are there. They get some success, and then it ends so terribly. So, do we want to get into that? Of course. Okay. Well, so. Minnesota Fighting Saints come along. So uh, again, there's a uh, you know the, the the North Stars are part of the '67 expansion, but they set up shop in St. Paul, and uh, they they're run by Glenn Sonmore, who's you know a veteran hockey man who'd actually played in that era, and and he thought because high school hockey is so popular in Minnesota and college hockey, 
he would build his team around Minnesotans who'd played university and, you know, were known to that era area. Well, the, the league comes and it kind of, they're not drawing really well. And they do a fan survey at the end of, at the end of year one. And, and they find out the fans find this boring. What they really like is rock and sock and hockey, tough guy hockey. And, and so they bring in the, the fighting Saints bring in Harry Neal, who goes on to a great coach, a great career as a coach in the NHL but they also start bringing in a goon squad, but they spend money and bring in Mike Walton, who's, you know, pretty, pretty good player. Uh, had been thought of as the next great superstar for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but Mike had some I- issues. He never quite got there. So they, they, they kind of assemble the guts of a pretty good team. And then they've got this goon show with them. And then they, they sail off and, um, have a really good year in year two. They end up facing the Houston Arrows in the playoff, which uh, create one of the great, great moments in WHA history because they're drawing 16,000, 17,000 to watch Gordie Howe and his son play this really funny Norse, or fight, funny fighting Saints team. So they have this moment where it looks like they're getting close and then they kind of lose momentum and then they lose ownership. And by the end of it, the players aren't getting paid. Um, they don't make it through their final year and it just kind of ends badly. But I mean, you know, you we're talking about, you know, a story arc that sounds like it's like 60, 70 years and it's four years and it goes up and down and up and down and it's bad and then it's good and then it's funny and then it's terrible, but it's just an amazing franchise. And like I said, the, the stories that came out of them are, came out of that franchise are absolutely terrific. Well, but that's that's not even that's not even crazy by comparison. I mean, I I look at this uh, this little uh, nook or cranny of uh, of the uh, uh, the journey of um, uh, the Denver Spurs, right? Who who played a year in 1975 and then kind of folded, or they kind of moved in 1976 to Ottawa, Canada, of all places, when they were on a road trip. Uh, you know, and they didn't even, that was so rushed. They didn't even like get a logo or, or even change their uniforms. And they're still Denver playing as Denver, but in an Ottawa, I, it's, it's a, how the Ottawa, yeah, the Ottawa civics. I'm sorry. I had to look it up. It's, it's been a while since I wrote that. And I think they play, they play one or two games as the civics and they fall, but you know, and, and again, like when we say business plan, there was this, and and Davidson and 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 Murphy and the other guys, they they, they understood chaos was part of the deal. It wasn't, you know, so franchises moved around. They didn't view that as a bad thing necessarily. You know, it brought fresh blood into the into the league and into the game. Now, obviously, you know, looking at this through the lens of 2018, it's largely hilarious. And and it was at the time, but but the, you know some of those franchises did hang around. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at my list of franchises, and we haven't even talked about like the, the Birmingham team, which is again a separate podcast in 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 and by itself. So it, it wasn't they like I said that was kind of uh, sewn into the cloth of the WHA. It was part of the deal that franchises were going to move around, and if it meant moving a team from New Jersey to San Diego, so be it. Well, uh, but it does uh, stand in stark contrast, though, to, you know, we sort of alluded to this earlier. There were a handful of franchises, a number of them that made the successful jump into the NHL once the merger was announced. 
Uh, and it seems like the bulk of them, if not all of them, were, uh, with the exception of the whalers who were there, but uh, stable in uh, in Canada, right? So Winnipeg, right? Pretty stable, very stable, right? Uh, 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 Quebec, uh, once they moved from uh, their original starting point in San Francisco, which actually never really was a, they never played a game in San Francisco, um, you know, and, uh, you know, Indianapolis was fairly strong near the end. Um, Edmonton, of course, uh, starting as Alberta, you know, maybe they're only, uh, sort of a wrinkle there, but, you know, so, um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is this dichotomy, you know, it seems like you've got one half, you know, of the, of the teams that just, they can't stick around. The owners can't stick around and others who are kind of gutting it out and, and, and staying stable and being, if you will, model franchises, uh, and, and getting just rewards sort of near the end of all this process. I mean, I, how do I, I, how does a league like the WHA, uh, you know, uh, s- stay in a good stead in the hockey community, right? Because I keep seeing over and over again in these various stories and anecdotes, right, where so-and-so, where the NHL, of course, but others sort of arena owners don't look at the WHA as being, quote-unquote, professional or taking them very seriously. Yet, you know, I, I would argue that, you know, people in Winnipeg and Edmonton and Quebec were probably very serious, because they were coming back year after year and staying around and staying quite stable at that. No, and again, I think it ties in with this theme of contrast in the in, in the WHA. And yes, those you know franchise you mentioned were stable, were well run. You know, had very good teams. You know, so, so, some like legitimately good teams. The end game for all of them was to get into the NHL. That was that was it. You know, and maybe maybe when they started off, it was a bit of a lark and a bit of an adventure. But by about year four, year five, this you know the, the, this merger talk is starting to gain steam, and they can find, they can see the finish line there. Uh, the, 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 there is a battle that's gone on. The NHL has lost tons of money. The WHA is also starting to sign junior age players, which is, you know, again, another topic we might get into. Uh, and that's really what forces the NHL's hand because now they're losing, not only are they losing some name players, but they're using like the next generation of stars to the WHA as well. But again, for the WHA teams, you know, especially when we get toward the end and there's kind of a process of natural selection that, you know, the, the, the teams, that just don't have the wherewithal or the inclination or the appetite to hang around are weeded out and you're left with these, you know, fairly serious operators. And like I said before, year six is by far the best best year, best season in the history of the WHA. And it's because it's a 17 entity there and everybody who's operating is are fairly serious and, and have, are putting a good product on the ice. And they really thought that the merger was going to actually, they probably thought the merger was going to happen the season before. They definitely thought it was going to happen the year that they had to wait another season to get it. But that was the end game for those guys getting into the NHL. Well, okay. But uh, juxtapose that with all the sort of dancing franchises, that seems kind of hard to kind of square. But uh, it, uh, my understanding though, is that the, 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 the merger conversation started fairly early on in the WHA's life, right? Maybe not publicly known. Is that, is that yeah. what you say? Well, I, I, I believe it started in year one. And, and, and I also think, you know, the, it, it, it was credible. It, it had some momentum. But again, there's this, you know, it's consistent throughout the seven years of the league. There's this like rum faction led by Toronto, uh, including Boston and Chicago, who lost Bobby Hull. 
who were very virulently opposed to the merger and they win the day. There's a couple of, there's a great story at the, the end of year five, the Quebec Nordiques win their only Avco Cup and Benny Hatskin, who by this time has maneuvered his way into the commissioner's job at the WHA presents the Avco Cup and it really is an Avco Cup this time <laughs> and says, and says, this is the last time we will present the Avco Cup because they really thought there was a merger. And, and the, the plan was put together by Howard Baldwin and Bill DeWitt, who was then operating the Cincinnati franchise. And it made perfect sense. There were going to be six WHA teams uh, uh, merging with the NHL. They were going to operate as their own division. And, you know, in time, they, 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 they kind of find their own way in, into the mainstream of the NHL. But again, this, you know, the, the, this anti-merger faction. And they only needed... I think it's five votes. It might. It was, it was between five or six votes uh, to kill merger. And they could always. They could always drum up those votes. Um, why do you think, uh, or do we know why Cincinnati and Houston ultimately did not make it uh, from those six uh, to merge into the NHL? Yeah, Houston had had folded by the Houston folded after year six. And they're, they're, most of their players were absorbed by the, by the Winnipeg Jets. Um, so they, they were really they're, that they're, merger that Houston was. They, 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 were, they, they were. Their owners their owners really ran out of money. It, 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 and I can't even remember what ownership group it was. Uh, but, but by the end of it, I, I think it might even be year five. I don't think they're around for year six. Uh, so, so they're not around. Cincinnati's an interesting one because they really thought they were there. And I, and I can't remember if they just decided to take, there was a payoff involved from the other WHA team they, 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 that there was part of the merger agreement and, and Cincinnati got bought out as, as did Birmingham. Um, and they were, the, they were the two teams that were still operating in, in year seven. I think that's right. Uh, I, I don't know if the, if the story is a, anything more than that. Um, they just, you know, maybe they, they, they just, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any intrigue uh, to it or anything like that. Uh, to be a fly on the wall of some of these uh, merger meetings, I mean, you have a great quote here from Howard Baldwin in your, uh, your chapter 12 here. It says, some of, these, some of those meetings were like Russian roulette. You'd look around the room and you'd go, there's no way that guy's going to make it. There's no way they're going to have a team. But there was a group there you could count on, and enough teams did all right that we could keep the thing moving. And uh, I, you know, I keep coming. I go back to, you know, obviously the Whalers, but uh, you know, uh, uh, Quebec certainly, and uh, and Winnipeg, and certainly Edmonton, and uh, you know, it's a it's a, a testament to to their ability to kind of hang in. Um, what what do you um, you know what what do you think um, finally uh, forced people's hands? I mean, Gretzky, you know, and some of these other sort of young. Uh, uh, junior hockey uh, uh, players were coming in around, I guess this is sort of 77, 78, right? Just after that fifth going into the sixth season. Um, obviously the talent was, uh, w- w- pipeline was certainly getting a little stronger. Um, w- was that a reason to sort of, and was the quality of the of the league getting better uh, despite its shakiness? Uh, what were the reasons that finally turned the tide two years later to finally force that merger in, in 79? Yeah, when you when you talk to the people who were involved in the WHA at the end, that that they believe that's what it was. They had and and this issue of signing young players, uh, the the best young junior players again. It had been a theme that starts in the WHA. Actually, 
with Mark Howe and, and Marty Howe going to Houston in year two, but by year six, it is in full force. And year seven, when the, the final year, which is the year Gretzky signs, signs with the Oilers, it's not only Gretzky. There's the, the Birmingham Bulls go out and sign uh, six of the best junior age players. They're called the, Burm- the Baby Bulls. And there's it's guys like Rick Vive and, uh, and Michel Goulet and Rob Ramage, uh, Pat Riggin, guys who went on to have really good NHL careers. Mike Gardner is in Cincinnati. Cincinnati also has a young centerman named Mark Messier, uh, who really didn't look like a star in the making, but he was the last WHA player still playing. So the, the WHA had committed to signing 18-year-old players when the NHL was still trying to hold on to this idea of a 20-year-old draft, and, and they were just losing too many good young players. You had that with the money they were losing, and then you, when, you know, in the expand, or when the merger agreement act comes in, you know, they're getting the bonus of, of the franchise fees from the teams that do come in. So you look at it, again, from the NHL's point of view, you're getting the good young players back, um, you're getting the franchise fees for the WHA team, plus you're removing this thing that has driven you crazy for the last seven years. So it's finally what drives the merger thing through. But even at that, it's still a battle to get it through in that that final year. Well, it almost feels like the uh, you know these junior players, right? Um, uh, we sort of touched on this issue when uh, in our conversation. Uh, with uh, Russ Buhite uh, a number of weeks ago around the Continental Baseball uh, League, the third professional league that was floated in the uh, early 1960s. It never got off the ground, but but the uh, the, the process uh, was well underway to create this sort of third league. But uh, it was uh, Branch Rickey of, of baseball uh, uh, management fame who, who recognized that, you know, you can get the league going to start, but in a couple of years you needed to get a farm system going because that was the structure underneath which young talent and, and, a, and a pipeline would be developed to sort of stock and improve the, the quality of play. I, 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 I guess it would be a stretch to say that the, the, the founders of the WHA even envisioned uh, a minor league hockey system underneath it at some point, right? Because it just seemed to me like it was kind of yeah. like, let's keep this plate spinning until we finally can it <laughs> Well, and, and again, and uh, it, well, here, it's another great WHA story. They kind of did have a farm uh, league in the old North American Hockey League, which is the league, of course, which gives rise to the movie Slapshot. And they're in places like Syracuse and Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and I'm going to just draw blanks on the other one. I think they're in Utica. Uh, home of the famous Comets. So, and they had, and 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 the Fighting Saints had their farm team in Johnston, and then that's where uh, that's where uh, the screenwriter um, Nancy Dowd goes because her brother is playing there. She hangs around there for two, three weeks, and realizes I've got the making of a movie here. So that's that, and that was a WHA farm team. So no, it never really, it never really sprouts into like a league where there's a theater system going in. The WHA, they're more raiders, they're poachers. They're not really big on developing long-term big vision things. And uh, yeah, I think that's what you're seeing there uh, with the young players. And 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 it really did force the NHL's hand. All right. As you look back on this, and this to me, this is just a scene setter, a, a palate uh, cleanser, a little, uh, a little starting point to to hopefully a whole bunch more WHA 
and specifically teams and stuff. Like, for example, I, I like to get Eli Gold, who was the voice of the uh, of the Birmingham team. He had moved from uh, he was a hockey guy doing uh, minor league hockey in the New York City metropolitan area, grew up in Brooklyn and uh, and wound up, uh, you know, uh, going down to Birmingham and uh, now is obviously the uh, the legendary voice of uh, the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide and it's done NASCAR and all kinds of other things since. But, you know, you got to you got to wonder what those three years in Birmingham were, were like. I mean, not necessarily a hockey town per se. Um, but besides all those stories and stuff, I mean, how much, you know, obviously the Winnipeg Jets exist in name. Certainly there was a break in the actual franchise itself. Um, you know, obviously the Edmonton Oilers still very uh, uh, strong and consistent uh, uh, ever since. Um, you know, the Whalers certainly have gone to uh, uh, other places in, in the case of uh, into the Carolina Hurricanes and whatever that is. Um, how much uh, uh, nostalgia is there, or how much uh, uh, willing embrace is there of the of the WHA versions of these teams, or are does the NH- NHL kind of really trying to want to sweep this under the rug and you know keep it like the crazy uncle that you know we know he exists, but we really <laughs> want to you know, acknowledge him at the dinner table. Well, I'm still getting royalty checks on this book, and it was it was written 14 years ago. So so there there is an appetite for it. And I think, again, it is just the richness and kookiness of the stories, plus this kind of romantic element that, that runs through them all. It, it's hard to really gauge the depth of the interest now because like so many, you know, like I'm 62 now and I can barely remember. I actually went uh, to Ottawa Civics games when I, when I was growing up in, the, in their first year of existence. And then they moved to Toronto by the, by the end of their, of their very first year. But but I, again, I think there's kind of a, like a timelessness about this story. And I know you've got, uh, have you had Jeff Perlman on to talk about the USFL? A little uh, more he, modern. Yeah, he's, com- he's coming up. We've got, we've uh, been circling around. Yeah. We'll probably do it closer to the uh, the debut of the book, which I think is on September 11th, but absolutely uh, on, the, right. on the agenda. So like in, in all these leagues, you know, and I referenced Terry Pluto's book about the, the ABA earlier. And, and these leagues, they just give rise to such incredible stories. And the characters involved and all the rest of it. And, you know, sports is just so corporate and straight laced now. And you don't get these kind of like, you know, these swashbuckling characters who are, you know, tearing down the old order and trying to build this new world. It, it just doesn't happen that way anymore. But I think there's really a universal appeal in, in, in these kinds of stories. Do you think, uh, I guess, to sort of uh, uh, put a, a, a capstone on this conversation uh, and, and hopefully a, a marker for uh, future ones, um, do you think that there's uh, an appetite or an opportunity uh, for uh, another challenger league to, say, the NHL, uh, uh, you know, in today's modern day, or, or are we pretty much past those times when, you know, a league sort of can completely come from outside and, and, and make a make a, a credible challenge with, uh, you know, with uh, top tier uh, pro hockey or any other sport. For if, that. I yeah. Know. If I use all my powers of imagination, I might be able to conceive of such a league existing in Europe and North America. There's just no way the, the, the price of competing is just would be just be too expensive. And, and, and you, you'd be talking about billion dollars investments to try and see it through um, the market conditions that exist when the WHA starts are absolutely perfect, but I don't think you could replicate those circumstances again in, in, a, in a million years. I mean, and again, you think of it, you've got the reserve clause, 
you've got like, uh, you know, underserviced markets, you, you've got, uh, you know, the, the sort of new generation, I think we talked about in the other podcast, podcast of venture capitalists who want to get in on the game, but they're blocked from it, you know, from, from the establishment. So you've got all these things kind of percolating underneath and that gives rise to these new, these new leagues. But I, I think the biggest thing there, again, the, the cost of, 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 of the entry into the, the membership fee is so low, it's affordable. And I, I just can't see a league starting under those circumstances. How do you? Th- Here's the last question. How do you think? How do you think the the pro game in Canada would have evolved without the WHA? Because you could make the argument in retrospect that the the, the seven year adventure of the WA, WHA essentially was the NHL's great Canadian expansion. Yeah, I think so. I I, I mean, there was that, there was like zero appetite for them to move into places like Winnipeg, like Edmonton, like Quebec. Um, and by the same token, there was, you know, there was a WHA team in Phoenix long before the Coyotes showed up. They were into the Sun Belt in a big way. Um, places like Houston, we talked about the Miami Screaming Eagles and everybody, you know, so they had, they had, they had, they had a vision. But I, I, I'm just not sure uh, if they would have ever found their way to, uh, to, to Winnipeg, to Quebec, to, to Hartford. Uh, to, to Edmonton had it not been uh, for, for the WHA. But again, you know, it, it, it's proved. And, you know, I, I mean, can you draw a straight line like Nashville? Not a very traditional hockey market, but they built something there. They built, so they've set roots into the community and they've really got something. So, I've, you know, it doesn't always have to be New York. It doesn't always have to be Los Angeles. There, there, there are markets where, where, where the game will thrive. Uh, but like I said, I just, I, I really seriously doubt if the NHL would have looked longingly at Winnipeg and Edmonton go, boy, we got to be there. There's a gold mine to be made there. Well, again, we've just scratched the surface and we didn't even get to talk about, uh, you know, the Chicago Cougars or the uh, San Diego Mariners or, or even the Michigan Stags and, uh, yeah, I hope at some point we can uh, go a little bit deeper. The Cleveland Crusaders, for God's sakes! I mean, you know, in Rich, in Richfield, Ohio, and I don't know. There's so many great, uh, great sort of stories to unearth and stuff. But you know, I we appreciate uh, we appreciate this uh, this conversation. Tell us about the book. Give us the name of it and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And because um, it's uh, it's a seminal work, there's no doubt. It's, it's called the Rebel League, and it was published in 2004. But I said, we didn't get into enough specific stories. I got to leave you with a couple. Oh, please. And it's the, the, the okay. The, so the one I opened the book with. So the uh, <laughs> the the Birmingham Bulls are playing in Winnipeg, and and the Birmingham Bulls had 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 like the toughest. It was a complete gong show. The team they put together. They 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 tried to do it with real hockey players in in their first year in Birmingham, but the fans in Birmingham wanted professional wrestling and they got this with this team. So anyways, they played the Winnipeg Jets and it's a brawl filled game. And after the game, uh, a drunken Winnipeg fan knocks on the, uh, on the, uh, on the Birmingham door. And, and he wants, he wants to, uh, he wants to uh, talk to Frank Beaton, who is one of the main goons of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Birmingham Bulls. So, Frank comes out. He's on his way in, in, into the show. He comes out with the towel around around the waist. This drunk Winnipeg Jets fan takes a swing at him, and now the fight's on. 
Well, all the other Winnipeg, it kind of spills out into the concourse. All the other uh, Birmingham players are kind of in the middle of heading to the shower. They hear there's a fight on, so they go charging out, most of them naked, into the concourse of the Winnipeg arena. So the brawl ensues, and they finally separate it, and they all laugh, and they're clapping each other on the back. (laughs) Well, this crowd has assembled, including many middle-aged ladies who are horrified of what what they saw. And I think I wrote at the time, I think if you're going to say a metaphor for the WHA, that would be it of all these crazy crazy, these lunatic hockey players running around naked, scaring people, that would be it. Frankie Beaton, for some reason, comes up in the my favorite WHA story. Um, at some point, he had been, an issue, a warrant had been uh, issued for his arrest in Cincinnati. The story goes, Frankie had a Corvette that he absolutely loved, and he was taking it in to be filled up with gas, and the gas station attendant got a little sloppy, spilled gas on Frankie's, uh, Corvette, he lost his mind. An argument ensues. The, uh, the the gas station attendant picks a fight, which he does not win. Frankie Beaton pummels him. The, the guy swears out a warrant, so he's now under arrest. Okay, so fast forward to the next year. Uh, Frankie is now with the Edmonton Oilers. They're coming in to play a game in Cincinnati. Uh, when they check into the hotel, there's two cops there with a warrant for Frankie's arrest. And Frankie, of course, you know, he hides his face, walks by them. Uh, the two cops, uh, they, they accost the play-by-play man, man, a guy named Rod Phillips, and says, are you Frankie Beaton? And he says, no, no, Frankie Frankie didn't make this trip. So that's so they go to the game that night, and, and they, they look around, and two cops sit behind the Edmonton Oilers player bench. Frankie looks, and he goes, uh-oh, but they concoct an, an escape plan. So with a couple of minutes left, Frankie crawls out underneath the player's bench into the locker room. He's zipped up into an equipment bag, thrown into the team bus with the rest. I'm sorry, t- thrown into the team truck with the rest of the equipment. The truck drives out. It meets the team bus outside of Cincinnati, outsprings Frankie from the exit from the equipment bag. And he's whisked away to safety. Now, the long arm of the law finally catches up with him the next year after an ab- another aborted uh, escape attempt. So that's the saga of Frankie Beaton and, and, and the arrest warrant. I just love it because it, 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 takes, it runs over three years and, and, and it's got a couple of different curves again. It's just like the well, WHA. That, that's a movie right there. You can make a little uh, – that's, a, that's, a, that's a, well, a caper right there. See, you, you laugh, and they basically slap shot is It's not really about the WHA, but it is. It, it is. It just happens to be about a WHA uh, farm team. But, but all those things that, that take place about, you know, the team moving or it's not moving or it's going to be sold or it's not going to be sold, and all the characters are involved. And so, some of those guys played, well, the Carlson brothers, uh, who played the Hanson brothers in the movie, both played in the WHA. Dave Hanson, who's the other Carlson brother, played in the WHA. Louis Levasseur, who's the goalie, uh, Denny Lemieux, uh, he played in the WHA. So, again, the roots run deep, my friend. They run very deep. Okay, that's uh, that's a, a an introductory course uh, to a, a topic that uh, we are going to go much much deeper into. Uh, there are just too many 
uh, rabbit holes and uh, and teams and uh, and lineages and stories to go into with the old World Hockey Association. And uh, we thank uh, Ed Willis, uh, the author of The Rebel League, that's the name of the book, The Short and Unruly Life of the World Hockey Association for getting us going on that conversation. But, uh, you know, like uh, the Calgary Cowboys. Uh, do you remember the Philadelphia Blazers? Uh, what of the Baltimore Blades or the Los Angeles Sharks? Uh, do you remember uh, the uh, the Cleveland Crusaders and uh, perhaps even the, uh, the 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 Dayton Arrows, which never played but uh, became Houston. But why Dayton? Why was Dayton even uh, on the uh, on the roadmap? I mean, no offense to the good folks of Dayton, but uh, not the most major league of metropolitan areas. Um, but these are the stories and the interesting uh, uh, just journeys of uh, of, uh, of of a league that uh, sort of defies logic. But uh, again, some themes and some people. Uh, some of whom we've talked to, some of whom we want to talk to, uh, and the WHA is absolutely part of, uh, of pro hockey's history. And of course, if you're a fan of uh, of many of the teams in the in, in, the, in, in Canadian hockey, uh, you know Edmonton, for example, right? I mean, without the WHA, there is no Edmonton, uh, as you heard from our guest uh, Ed Willis. So, um, uh, interesting story, a fascinating book, and again, it's called The Rebel League: The Short and Unruly Life of the World Hockey Association. It was published by uh, McClellan and Stewart. Uh, there are uh, uh, new copies of it uh, still out there. It is being published. Uh, by all means, get it. Uh, it is a fascinating story, and uh, you will not regret it. You will not be able to put it down. I, I guarantee you uh, some good photos in there, too. You can find a link, of course, to the book uh, when you search up the episode on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search for the episode. I think it's number 69. Is it correct? Yes. Uh, Ed Willis, and you'll find it there. you also find uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, previous episode uh, that we did with uh, with Ed on the uh, the Canadian Football League uh, and it's a journey into the uh, United States that's our episode 65 you'll find that there too uh, and of course uh, not only on that website will you see all the good stuff that you need to find uh, you'll find our, our email address and all kinds of stuff you also find our social media links which I'll regale you with now uh, on Twitter we're at good seats still uh, and at uh, Instagram on Instagram sure uh, you'll find us at good seats still available and yes if you're on facebook if you're still on that thing uh you can find us uh, we've got a page uh, devoted to uh, the show there as well uh we appreciate your uh, following us and uh, tweeting us or uh, communicating with us on social media and uh, we also appreciate our friends at podfly productions in particular uh, the one and only jerry Payne. Uh, occasionally we call him the good doctor uh, uh it's debatable as to what kind of doctor he is we have the authorities checking on that right now uh, but as far as I know, uh, he is uh, the doctor of all things podcast production and editing, and uh, he does a hell of a job each week uh, putting our little shards together into something uh, coherent or remotely interesting. And uh, he and his team at Podfly Productions can be found at podfly.net. Uh, if you're interested in getting your own podcast up and running, they are the place to go and to check out podfly.net, Podfly Productions. Thank you so much. Uh, we also thank you for listening. Uh, we can't do this without you. Uh, and uh, we appreciate your listenership and uh, more good stuff to come. Keep your cards and letters coming, as they say. Suggestions, comments, uh, keep it all coming. We, we appreciate it very, very much. Take care until next week. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.